Hello, I'm Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to or watching Radio Maine. Today, it's my great pleasure to have in the studio with me a fellow physician and author, Dr. Chuck Radis. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I know that you're you're a very busy individual. You, you've, as you and I were talking before um, we started filming, you were talking about, so I'm on my way up to Ellsworth. I spend a week a month up at the Maine Coast Hospital, and I do still practice rheumatology. And you you just told me you've you have four books that are out. I know you do a lot of social justice work. I mean, you have a lot going on. Um, always been kind of a restless soul, I guess. Uh, so yeah, I I um at, when I left full time medical practice in 2015, uh, I, I knew there were a lot of things that I really had been looking forward to doing. I, you know, I'd have time to finally uh, spend more time on them. One of the things that I'm interested in too is that. Um you know, my dad, longtime family practice doctor, kind of was in the same medical community that I know you were practicing in the Portland area for many, many years. And he actually would never have stopped practicing, I think. He still would be doing probably what you're doing now if he hadn't um, needed to step aside to, to manage his cancer, which now he's doing great. So that all works out well. But I love the fact that you still are really enjoying the practice of medicine. Because I'm not sure everybody can say that right now. I think that's true. You know, you hear a, a, a lot of noise about that. Um, I've always really enjoyed seeing patients and can put aside the other aggravations uh, of medical practices. So um, I, and, and I've also seen physicians who've completely stopped practicing and didn't have enough to fill their days. And uh, so uh, I, I'm in a nice niche going up to Maine Coast a week a month. And um, there's a history of that in rheumatology is that there's, since there's so few rheumatologists in the state, every single rheumatologist I can think of in the last 30 years stopped full-time practice in their late 60s or 70s and then continued a smaller practice in more rural areas of Maine. Um, and so um, I'm actually just following in the footsteps of people who I, I knew who had retired before me from full-time practice. It's been kind of interesting how that all has worked, and, and practicing into their 80s. Uh, so. so for those who may not know what rheumatology is, talk to me about that a little bit. Sure. Uh, the, the fellowship is actually usually rheumatology and clinical immunology, and so within that broad group of diseases. Uh, some of them, people have arthritis, but a lot of them are really disorders of the immune system. Some of them are, are just special to rheumatology like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, but we interact also with immune system disorders that say Crohn's disease, that the GI people manage. Sometimes we become involved with that. Uh, with pulmonary interstitial lung disease syndromes. So uh, it's, uh, it's an area that luckily in the last 15, 20 years, there, it's just been an explosion of, of more effective medications and less reliance on prednisone, which is the big bugaboo long term. 
Yeah, you're right. I mean, steroids like, you know, prednisone, obviously great for inflammation, but also lots of side effects, very nonspecific, doesn't do anything to actually get at the cause of the underlying process. Typically. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, Michelle Petrie at Johns Hopkins, uh, who detests the long-term use of prednisone, she feels that the P in prednisone should stand for poison which is hard because we still have diseases in which we people have to be on some prednisone, particularly in the beginning. So I, I, I never try to poison the waters with that. But so much focus is on finding more effective treatments that, in which people are either briefly on prednisone or uh, sometimes not at all. One of the reasons I'm teasing out, like, what is it that you do now is because I want to kind of jump back to what, what it was that you did before, because you actually were a but I think it was considered family medicine in the day as opposed to primary care, which is what it is now. Um, you were an island doctor. You um, wrote two books about being an island doctor, and you made the choice to move into specialty medicine. So talk to me a little bit about that. Right. So I've always had an interest in immunology, and, and so uh, going through college, uh, I went to Bates College, and uh, my internal medicine residency, you know, I, I did a lot of elective time or class time in immunology, uh, but I knew I had a National Health Service Corps uh, obligation to serve in primary medicine uh, in a high-need area, which, which I looked forward to. So I knew I, I wasn't going to be going into rheumatology right away, or perhaps never. And so uh, back in 1985... My area of service were was the Casco Bay Islands. So uh, my wife Sandy and I moved out to Peaks Island. That's where we still live. And uh, then I started uh, a practice that actually served a clinic on Shabig Island and a clinic on Peaks Island. And then uh, some other uh, islands uh, were serviced by uh, house calls. But eventually, you know, I kept circling back to uh, immunology, and um, I had some uh, uh, other physicians who were in rheumatology who encouraged me, even though I was getting a little older, you know, to go back and uh, do a fellowship, and and uh, uh, that that transition happened a long time ago in 1991. So I, I've been in rheumatology a long time. And what were some of the th the lessons that you brought forward from family medicine, primary care medicine, into the, your specialty practice? Yeah, that that's a great question. Um, in rheumatology, many of our patients, particularly the younger patients, it's the only condition they have. So uh, an 18-year-old with lupus or a 25-year-old with rheumatoid arthritis... And so we, in many ways, we become their primary care doctor uh, because a lot of the medicines we use uh, increase the risk of infection. We make sure they get immunizations. Uh, uh, a lot of our drugs may risk increase the risk of cardiovascular disease. And so, you know, we're so having been in primary care, I, I like the idea of seeing people long term and looking at uh, kind of the total picture of how they're. Um, adjusting to a lifelong illness and um, or not, 
and trying to uh, approach that from primary care. And, you know, obviously many of them had primary care people in addition, uh, but um, that, that I just kind of was in sync with that to be able to see people with some of these long-term illnesses. When you were acting as an island doctor, I think one of the ways I became aware of the work that you did then, because I, I knew you as a rheumatologist for many years when I was in the Portland area practicing, and I had no idea that this was your background. You came to the Hanley Institute and um, you read from one of your books, and, and you were really describing this interesting and very different island culture and very different and um, kind of unique negotiations that you ended up needing to go through with the community so that, that they were willing to kind of accept you into their midst to practice medicine. Right. Uh, and each of the islands is unique. And so you, you can't really compare long to peaks or long to Shabig. So, so the culture of each of the islands was very different, which I, I had no idea and, and had to learn that. Uh, on peaks where we lived, uh, I was less of an outsider. Um, perhaps compared to the other islands, there was a lot more poverty on Peaks Island at that time. Uh, Peaks at one point was known as Poverty Island. And, uh, and so it, it hadn't been gentrified at all. Uh, there was a, really a, 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 a culture of just managing things on island. Some people never left the island for anything. Uh, there were grocery store, there was a grocery store on the island and, you know, some people didn't even leave their side of the island. Uh, and so uh, when it came time to convincing people to get testing or to see a consult uh, for, say, gastroenterology or cardiology in Portland, sometimes that was a big negotiation. And sometimes people uh, certainly did not want to travel to Portland uh, some people did, obviously. I, you know, it wasn't an everyday occurrence, but it, there was a lot of negotiations going on in, in terms of uh, getting people the care they needed in, in areas that uh, I um, wasn't really uh, well-trained to take care of. So, And I think that is an interesting thing. I, I have also noticed about practicing in Maine. You know, when I was practicing in Brunswick and, and the institution moved our practice to Topsom. People said, oh, no, I'm sorry. I really like you as a doctor, but I can't cross the river. It's too far away. <laughs> right. that, that people really are um, very tied to geography, many people. Yes. Um, and so I guess if you're on an island, it, it, it kind of makes sense, right? Because you actually have an ocean around you. Even more so. But, yeah. but I, 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 I think in Maine that's true even for uh, smaller communities. And yeah. So true. Part of what we do in medicine is building trust with patients. And you just said, you know, we, when I lived on peaks, you know, I lived there so people knew me. You're going to other places where people are very tied to their geography and very tied to their community. How does one kind of uh, to break into the island culture and maybe convince people that you actually could offer them something that would be worthwhile to them in the form of healthcare? I don't think there's one pathway with that. And you can't try too hard. That, that doesn't seem to work. Uh, sometimes it's just luck in that um, you treat a person early on who is influential in the com community. They like you. Uh, kind of quietly, uh, the word spreads that, that you're okay. Um, I, you know, I had a, an extra little bit of a, a challenge in that I, my training in primary care was as a DO. And uh, for some people back 
in the mid 80s that mattered. And so there, there were some people who needed additional reassurance that as a DO back in the mid 80s that uh, they were seeing uh, the equivalent of an MD. So, so there was a little bit of that back in the mid 80s. Um, there was a lot of transition going on with that. But back in the mid 80s, uh, we still had osteopathic hospitals. And uh, only DOs were on staff there. And DOs weren't on staff, say, at Maine Medical Center. It was kind of separate but equal. So uh, not on an everyday basis and actually much less on Peaks Island. There was a little bit of that DO uh, MD thing going on subliminally. So Yeah, I mean, you're, you're describing something that I think anybody who is, I don't know, maybe 40 and younger or maybe 30 and younger, certainly, would, wouldn't really understand. Because no. I, I think the MDDO divide has has largely been kind of erased, particularly in Maine, maybe other parts of the country. I don't really know. I've never practiced anywhere else. But in Maine, I mean, we are all physicians. I we, agree. We go I to agree. medical school and we come out doctors. Yeah. But you are absolutely right. Kind of historically, there was a very big divide. And I was at Maine Med doing my family medicine residency when the first DO was brought in as, a, I think, a pediatrics resident. It was a big deal. Like, this person had to be the best of all the best DOs in order to make it into the residency at Maine Med. That's right. That's and, and thinking right. back to it now, it's, it's such a, it's so strange because I, I don't think we approach it that way anymore. No, I mean, the chief of the medical staff at Maine Med eventually was a DO. Uh, you know, so uh, once... Uh, practices on the outside became blended uh, and hospital staffs blended and DO hospitals merged. And so that all went away. But And you're absolutely right. You know, people from a certain age and younger really would be going, really? And, um, and the answer is, yeah, still. Uh, well, not so much still, but it's certainly true for that time. And it, and it feels like we're continuing to really try to figure this out. Like, how do we actually offer care to patients? And it's still, it's a very hierarchical model. We still think a lot about doctors, but we also have NPs, you know, nurse practitioners and physician assistants, who I think might be called physician associates now. But I mean, there's different levels. We're asking our RNs to do more, our, you know, medical assistants to do more. But there's still this interesting thing. We're still, we don't have enough people to care for the patients in the state of Maine, arguably around the country, but definitely not in rural places like Maine. And yet we still... There's still like friction and strife. We still can't quite figure out how to make it all work with the resources we have. It's uh, evolved, but not always uh, in in a direction of better patient care. Some some things that we've experimented in recent decades have worked well, and others haven't. You even have that um, divide or or option that uh, used to be everyone was in private practice managing their own practice. Uh, now most physicians in Maine are employees, and uh, that model can work better in some ways, but maybe not as well in others. Uh, so uh, it, it, it's compared, say, to uh, other countries that have a, a single healthcare system. Uh, I think uh, it's very complicated. It's very complicated for patients to navigate, and uh, I, I've been a proponent of not 
uh, getting rid of private health insurance, but having a single payer system that uh, people can opt out of, but that it's just a single system. And um, that, uh, you know, is, is also a very difficult thing to evolve into when you have this history of uh, our for, for-profit system. So it, <laughs> it's never easy. I found out a lot of that more about that when I was in the Hanley program, which was a great experience. So Well, I had no idea that, or maybe I just wasn't paying attention when you were introduced. So you actually also went through the Hanley leadership program. I did. Uh, and, um, you know, at the time I was in full-time practice, but I, it's still, I really look forward to, to the time there. It was such a different uh, experience for me. I, I hadn't been involved very much at that point in, in public health or uh, the bigger pictures in, in medicine. So I enjoyed that respite from full-time medical practice. I think it was on weekends maybe when you would do it and they brought in a lot of interesting folks. You know, as I'm, I'm hearing you talk and knowing your kind of broad range of interests, it strikes me that one of the things that we actually need in medicine is people who are interacting in spheres that are outside of medicine so that they actually, that we are having different experiences that maybe we can learn from in other places. I mean, Hanley was certainly specific to medicine because it's, it's, it's healthcare leadership, but you know, for example, you spent six years writing a book on the botany of Casco Bay plants with your brother. I understand. Yes. You know, I mean, are there lessons that we who are kind of working with the wellness and health of patients can get from from non-healthcare settings, can, what can we learn? Like the healthcare system, that part's complicated in that, uh, you know, many uh, healthcare providers, you know, feel that, that, you know, just doing what they're doing in medicine is all they can manage uh, and that uh, they have very little time for outside interests. Having said that, um, if I go back to the admission processes for medical school still, um, there's some exceptions to this, uh, um, particularly, say, at Columbia, where they, they pick people who have broad backgrounds. But there's, there's this arms race uh, to have as, be- as good a, uh, uh, a record that is just kind of focused on medicine and excel in your classes and do well in MCATs. And some, sometimes I feel that the people that are selected now are top-heavy for people who have had to kind of give up everything already just to enter the queue to enter medical school. And that um, then self-selects then for people who then who maybe uh, are sh- struggling because they're, they're engulfed in medicine and their careers and they, they don't have time they perceive for outside hobbies. So a little bit of it, I think, goes back to the selection process now be just my own take on it. Which is interesting because obviously, you know, you went to Bates, you know, a small liberal arts school in Maine. I went to Bowdoin, another small liberal arts school in Maine. And so, you know, we, we come at it already from a, a different background than That's somebody right. who That's enters right. into it from, you know, let's, let's say an engineering school, let's just say. Right. So then I think it predisposes people like you who are who want to write or want to explore different things outside of medicine predisposes you to kind of stay on that path. And at the same time, I also absolutely agree with you. I mean, people either, if you're in a private practice or you're employed, you work a lot and you care for patients and it's very time consuming. So how I, I just, I also struggle with how do we kind of create enough balance so people actually can 
find time outside of medicine to do anything other than maybe raise a family. Right. Uh, that's, that's, you know, a, a, there's not a quick and easy answer to that. I, I think part of it is acknowledging you can never really have a balance. You can work toward having a balance. And I think if you're, if you're working toward that, you're always looking for opportunities to do things outside of your medical practice instead of just assuming that, you know, your whole life has to be engulfed by that. And part of that is saying no. So if you're saying yes to everything in medicine, even things that maybe you don't have to say yes to, or you're not exploring whether there are some things you can say no to, then you're never going to have time because it'll expand to as many hours as there are in the day. But if, you, uh, if you're always looking for opportunities to, um, uh, to simplify things or saying yes more, say, to your family, uh, your, your, your long-term mental health, I think, is better. But it, it takes almost constant awareness that uh, you're making choices, and sometimes those choices lead to even longer hours. So. Well, one of the things that I do in, in my current work is is a lot of bringing in and retaining medical staff across specialties, but in particular primary care. And one of the things that we are noting is people who are coming into medicine are already setting boundaries and saying, I'm sorry, your definition of full-time is, is not something that I, that I want to do. It's not uh, something that works for my life. Yeah. So we very rarely have people who come in as, you know, what's called a 1.0 FTE. You know, people will come in and they'll come in half time and maybe half time in primary care, half time in addiction medicine, um, which is the term of art, although it is substance use disorder now, technically. I, I wonder if that's also part of kind of just rejiggering if, if the expectation is full-time care looks like this, that we as physicians and advanced practice pre- um, providers, if we have to kind of say, well, all right, then full-time isn't, I, I can't do full-time. I can do slightly less than full-time. I can do half-time and I might have to make changes, you know, say as I'm raising my children or as my interests evolve outside of right, medicine. Right. Oh, I'm so glad you're bringing that up because that's the, the counter movement going on that uh, sometimes I'm not always aware of, and, and, and that's healthy. And uh, some of those people eventually, you know, the life changes and they, they, they change their hours. It's, it's great as employees that, that people have that option. So, yeah, that's, that's great. Well, I think it, it's almost had to happen, right? I mean, yes. when, I, when I started in medicine, even though my medical school class was half um, women, the people who came before me, that was not half women. Right. And, you know, the Family Medical Leave Act had just passed. And actually, not even as I was, I don't, I didn't even, I never even benefited from the Family Medical Leave Act. But as I was having my children, I mean, and seeing all the other women around me who literally would have to actually drop out of medicine in order to raise families. Right. I mean, that was not a tenable solution. So as we've said, yes, we would like to be more inclusive of other types of practitioners. We've had to say, yeah, we're going to have to be more inclusive of, of other ways to live people's lives. Right. And, and, and having some of your, your work involved in, in trying to create an environment where people can do that. I, I, I think that uh, that's that kind of movement is being shared by lots of institutions, I'm sure. So uh, 
And so that's healthy. That's great. We've veered very far into the traditional medical kind of conversation, but I, I want to make sure I take some time to talk about some of the the work that you do in medicine that's not here in the United States that focuses on other people from other parts of the world. So tell me about some of the work that you're doing in social justice. Sure. Thanks. Both my daughters uh, went to Portland High School, and at Portland High School, as as you know, uh, there there are, have been waves of immigrants and asylum seekers, and in their class uh, was the latest African immigration. Years before that, it was Vietnamese, and then it was Eastern Europe. But, but for decades now, it's been uh, it's been African. So some of their classmates were uh, from South Sudan. Uh, I got to know uh, the parents. They'd already formed a group. And so back in 2012, uh, my wife and I uh, formed a small like family nonprofit. And uh, we started doing small projects in South Sudan during that period of time where there was some stability there uh, before uh, they really uh, went off the rails into a civil war. Um, and so we, we kind of had the contacts here in Portland, and some of the people we were working with were relatives in South Sudan, but we were able to adopt programs. We didn't have to invent things. So we, we would look around, and we found a nice program through the Mass General in which they were already in South Sudan. They were training traditional birth attendants. My son-in-law, uh, who wasn't my son-in-law now, and now he's in family practice. Uh, he he went with me on that first trip, and uh, we trained uh, 17 traditional birth attendants in a, a mass general program. Went back the next year, did a first aid program, um, and we're kind of gearing up to do more of those kinds of programs in South Sudan when uh, most of the people we were working with uh, fled south to a, a UN settlement called Dango in Uganda. And so that's where our programs have been ever since. Uh, and uh, until COVID, I was going there a couple times a year. And uh, we helped set up a, a sister nonprofit within the UN settlement through which we could do our programs. And they, uh, they very much were the ones who were deciding uh, what kinds of programs they needed that the United Nations really wasn't able to take care of on the ground there. So we've been doing that now for quite a few years. And um, it's it's been a really, uh, it's been manageable because it is just a family nonprofit and we, um, we get donations from friends and, and family. If anyone is interested in donating toward that nonprofit, they can go to MAPSJ, dot uh, org main african partnership for social justice and uh they could look at that web page and uh p- perhaps decide uh, to donate toward that uh, so that's been exciting that that didn't die out with the with the civil war and that we were able to reboot it in in uganda which is much safer so you have that family project going and you also wrote this book that I referred to earlier with your brother. I do relax. I'm, I'm out on the water quite a bit, but, but uh, I realized that um, I am kind of restless. I, I like having multiple things going on at the same time that I can whittle away at in my spare time. Um, I, I've always had really broad interests. 
and um, uh, and thankfully, you know, I've been able to um, usually follow them through to the end of a project. You know, so um, um, I've, I'm now seventy and feel like I've still got the energy to do most of these things that are important to me. So, so why botany? What was it about? Was this because this is your brother's interest or, and, and why botany of Casco Bay specifically? Well, my brother is a, a consultant in, in uh, rare and endangered species, both botanically and, and reptiles and amphibians. That's what he's done for his work for decades. So I've kind of gone along with that. We, we grew up, uh, spending parts of summers in a, in a remote farm in West Virginia where my grandfather lived. And my uncle would take us around and we would look at flowering plants. And he would say, this is that, and this is that. And I really, really enjoyed that. And my brother later told me, well, you remember Uncle Thurman take us around? He says, you know, there was not a single thing that he told us that was correct. <laughs> there was not one thing. And so I, I kind of had a realization that, oh, all this knowledge that I thought I had, I had to re, you know, rethink. So, so I, my, my brother is a great guy to get out in the woods with and, and uh, just kind of review all that. So it's one of the ways we bond. I mean, that's the way we, we spend time. He comes up to Peak Sion and Casco Bay and he'll tromp around the woods and uh, it's, it's very relaxing. And he, I don't accumulate botanical knowledge very well. You know, I, medical issues, for some reason, they get com, kind of compartmentalized, but uh, he's very patient with uh, repeating and repeating and repeating. So, yeah. Good guy, Rick Radis. And the name of that book is? Flowering Plants of Casco Bay. Um, that one was self-published uh, this year. Uh, the other books are carried by Down East, uh, and, um, uh, you know, we, we have it at Paul's Marina and Harpswell and a couple of the island bookstores, Peaks Island. So it's very limited. You'd have to really look for it to find it. So it sounds very special. So it's worth looking for. Oh yeah. If you live on the, on Casco Bay or near Casco Bay, it, it's, he, he's a great photographer. And so he took all the photos and, and, uh, I helped with some of the descriptions. It's really, uh. It's amazing what's out there when you really start looking at for it. And then you were telling me, just going off in a completely other different, you know, other direction, you were part of writing a book about John Jenkins. Talk to me about that. Right. Well, uh, for some of your listeners, uh, they may remember John Jenkins. He was kind of a bigger than life um, black politician uh, who I went to school with at Bates. Uh, he later, you know, he became mayor of Lewiston, mayor of Auburn, Maine's first black state senator, uh, and was very a high-level karate uh, competitor all his life. Um, when he died, uh, a committee got together wanting to honor him, and uh, I agreed to collect stories about him, which all eventually morphed into uh, writing a, a biography and uh, I've never done that kind of writing before, so it was fascinating to try to read some other biographies, not the 500-page ones. This is a very short biography, but to, to try to understand how, how that comes together. So I really enjoyed, I, I interviewed his family in Newark, New Jersey, which is where he came from, some of his karate connections, and um, that, uh, Down East, uh, uh, published that this past spring. And we had a nice 
celebration of John's life. And so he, it was important to remember him. I, I, I really feel he's, he is an important person in Maine history. And uh, I think this committee that got together did so many nice things to um, memorialize him because he passed away during COVID. And really, there really wasn't a celebration of all the things he brought to Maine that were important. Well, having spent some time with you now, I, I have to say that um, you and I are likely kindred spirits. My husband would also tell you that I am also a restless individual with um, a broad variety of interests. And it's actually nice to hear that, you know, it's completely fine. You, you can be something other than a doctor. That is yeah. not your whole identity. Yeah. And that you can actually build a life that moves off, you know, simultaneously down different paths. Yeah. So, so I, I appreciate that you've been willing to kind of share this element of yourself with me, or all the elements, because it's something that I also know to be true of myself. Thank you. And, and you know, like you, you know, you went to Bowdoin and I went to Bates. I did not appreciate a liberal arts education as I was getting it. But I think that broad range of things that you're expected to uh, experience in those kind of institutions really makes it more likely that you and I later on are doing a lot of different things. And uh, I, I have to include Colby in that, you know, that the, you know, all three of those institutions, it's hard being a liberal arts college. So yeah, I thank you. And, and, uh, I, it's been interesting learning a little bit about, uh, uh, your life. So. Well, and I think that this, for me, you know, you are asking, you know, what does my day look like after this? And there's my medical stuff that I do. And then there's this that I do. And one of the things I like so much about doing this work is learning about people in a different way. And actually it's, I mean, it's, it's such um, it's something I value so much that somebody's willing to come in and, and have a prolonged conversation on themselves and their lives. Because I, I think that's not something that happens very much anymore. No, you, you've asked me things that uh, I, I haven't been asked ever, really. So that's been pleasure. It's been really interesting. And I, I appreciate you asking me. Thank you. I, I've read one of your books. I look forward to reading the other three. And uh, my dad, in fact, handed me, I think, one of one of your two island books. So he's, he's, I, that's on my list as well. But um, I hope that other people take the time to, I don't know, you said it's called Paul's Marina? Yeah, Paul's Marina and Harps Well uh, carries it. And, um, you know, if someone wanted to drop me an email or contact me through you, I, you know, I'd be glad to send them a copy of the botanical book because um, self-publishing I'd never realized just how complicated that can be. And, you know, after it comes out, trying to find places that sell it. So thank you. Okay. Well, very good. So there's there are many things that Dr. Chuck Redis can teach each one of us. Not, not, you know, medicine, botany, history, all kinds of things. So I encourage those of you who are watching or listening today to learn a little bit more about him through his books or maybe donate to his family foundation and support others around the world at um, the website that he described earlier, which we will also put up on our website. And um, it's really been a pleasure talking with you today. So thank you for taking thank the you, time. Thank you, Lisa. It's really, really been great. I appreciate it. I'm Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you've been listening to or watching Radio Maine. Mm -hmm.